All right, I didn't know it was my time, so I'm really happy to be with you folks. I appreciate Pastor Scott so much all these years and the church here uh, and your kind support, generous support. It's helped me do a lot of things, and I can't help but just tell you this story. I'll probably tell several stories in my message today, but Operation Christmas, Christmas Child, this has reminded me and in uh, 2010 to 2014, made five trips to the Republic of Georgia, which is right next to Turkey. And um, we'd go there in June, uh, a, a man from my church in Asheville and, and, and I, he was married to a Georgian woman. It's a long story, but we, we made some connections. We began to preach on the streets and walk around and hand out tracts in Batumi, Georgia, which is on the border of Turkey, not far from where the ark landed in the high mountains of the Caucasus Mountains in Turkey. And um, the Operation Christmas Child uh, has to have people in all these countries to know what to do with the boxes. Well, one of those guys was, was one of the Georgians, uh, basically part of Russia for a while, and just had broken free from Russia at that time. And so he brought, uh, uh, he came to our, our church services and he said, I've got a dilemma. I want to get these church, these uh, Christmas boxes way up into the mountains where the people have never heard the gospel. I said, that's where we want to preach. So we just kind of said, okay, we'll go, you take us there and wherever we go, we're going to preach after we give out the Christmas, and after we preach, we're going to give out these mountains of Christmas boxes. So we took these big trucks Way up, I'm telling you the truth, if at least five hours up winding roads, all up in the mountains. And we, all along, we'd, we'd stop and we'd, uh, we'd get out in a little village and the children would come and the parents would come and we'd show uh, what the boxes were that they were their Christmas. Now, this was June. They were just happy to receive Christmas. They didn't really know much about it. Many of them were Muslim villages. And uh, they, they were receiving these. I remember the last place we went, they said, was the highest village in all of Europe. I mean, that's higher than any village in the Swiss Alps. That's how high we were. I mean, it, was, it took us all day to get there and, all, and, and the rest of the day into the night to get back. What a joy it was. And we saw people saved all along the way. At that highest village, uh, it snowed. In June, it was 90 degrees down where we were conducting our meetings on the sea coast of the Black Sea. By the time we got up to that last village, it was early in the afternoon and it snowed in the evening as we started to make our way down. But what a joy! And you, you just, I hadn't planned to say this, but because you said about the and showed the beautiful uh, sights of Christmas boxes, so uh, when you do your Christmas boxes, maybe you'll think of that story and realize that. People are really getting saved. I, I know some countries, they don't allow tracks in and stuff like that. But hey, listen, I, I, I'm in some of those countries. And I know you just can't give out tracks. I've already been in Pakistan this year. I go every year. I'm going to uh, Myanmar next month. Myanmar just had a coup where the Buddhist soldiers took over the country and started basically killing Christian groups and Muslim groups. I mean, you know, you think of Buddhists as peace-loving people. I'm on the border of uh, Bhutan. I have a Bible college that we started there, and I'm working with there. And that's a Buddhist country. And they, they, we have to bring them over into uh, Hindu India in order uh, to reach them for Christ. And we're training uh, Bhutanese. Uh, in fact, one guy uh, went to a Buddhist monastery all of his life. At five years old, he was dropped off there. 
And uh, he, he got saved at the age of 14 and came to our Bible college. We trained him for three years, and he's back in there serving the Lord. So I want you to know that mission is, is going on today in places you cannot believe. And it's partly because these things are happening. Uh, the, the boxes are getting us because even though these countries are in turmoil and there's a lot of terrorism, there's a lot of threats, it doesn't stop the gospel. We've got to keep going. And I want to talk to you this morning about the impact of a life for missions. It's going to be a missions message, and I, I thank God that you're so involved in missions here at the church. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, I want to speak to you about the impact of a life, and I'm going to take as a text the life of Stephen. And in verse 10 of chapter 6, he had been speaking to the synagogue, verse 9, Many people came to hear him. They were disputing with him. Verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they subordinated men which said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and, and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, I hope you'll sometime, you have, I'm sure, in, in your devotions, read chapter 7. It's the most marvelous message, I think, in the New Testament, delivered by a man who was about to lose his life. Uh, I think it's better than Peter's message at Pentecost. So you'll have to read that and see if you don't agree. It, it lays out the history of God's dealing with the, the patriarchs and then, and then the, the Messiah, uh, the one that Moses, in verse 37 of Acts 7, uh, prophesied that a prophet would come. He ties it all together. And then he talks about that they had betrayed the just one and crucified him. Well, they didn't like that. That's the part that really irritated them. And so in verse 54, when they heard these things, I'm in chapter 7, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And that term, Son of Man, was only used by Jesus pretty much uh, during his time on earth. So he's basically committing blasphemy by saying, That man, Jesus... I see him. I'm talking to him. Wow. You think that made him happy? No. They, just, they, they continued throwing those stones. They cried. Then, verse 57, with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Mm, I want you to think about that. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, I'm reading now in chapter 8, not going to read the whole chapter, all of Acts, but there's some important things here. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And then verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering in every house and hailing men and women and committed them to prison. After Stephen's message, who was a promising young preacher, a deacon in the early church at Jerusalem, 
He was killed. He was stoned. He lost his life. After Peter's sermon, 3,000 people got saved and launched the beginnings of what is the, the church. And we're part of that, the, the church of Jesus Christ. And, and think about the difference. Paul, uh, uh, Peter went on to have a great ministry and did wonderful things. Stephen had no opportunity to do that. It almost would seem to us like what a waste of a, of a man who was filled with the Spirit, the Bible says. And now he's, he's dead. Stone to death. Heavenly Father, in these moments, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God might speak to our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the impact of people's lives on the gospel and other people. I believe this is a case where one man's life impacted another's tremendously. And Lord, I thank you that you've impacted my life, and I pray that we would seek and even the humble ways to be an impact on the life of others. So that we could one day hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Maybe nothing uh, much that we've accomplished, but maybe somebody that we've impacted might make something uh, glorious in your eyes. I have a great ministry here on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And I want to tell you a few stories about Africa because when I was two years old, my parents took me to the Belgian Congo. Now, if you look at a map of Africa, and you see the, by far the biggest country in all of Africa is what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's changed its name several times. It's right there in the middle. And we were right there on the equator. And I lived there for four years. And um, it became a killing zone. I'm surprised they have not made more of a historical movie on what happened there. We lost over 20 of our missionaries in a period of just a few years. Many other uh, of other missions lost their lives as well. I want to quote from this tract called Christ is Sufficient. And I uh, want to read to you about a friend of ours that we worked with named Hector McMillan. Hector McMillan uh, went to a small Bible institute in Canada. And my dad went shortly after, and, 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 and as Hector was graduating, my dad was going. He had just been converted. And, um, and so he wanted to serve God somewhere. And the next three or four years, he trained and prepared because he had just a new Christian, went to Bible college, and then he went on to mission training school, and he followed Hector McMillan out to the Belgian Congo. And I, being two years old, and, and then my brother was born, uh, just a newborn baby and my mother and we went out there and we lived in the jungle literally in the jungle We had to cut the jungle to make a brick home And there were so many holes in that home because my dad wasn't a you know, he was was not a builder like some of you guys are builders, you know, and uh, I, I know this is the honest truth. He said during those four years. I was just a kid We had 13 black and green mambas at one time or another in our house that had crawled through. Now, if you know anything about snakes, you know that's one of the most deadliest snakes on earth. We had tarantulas and many others, scorpions, other things. We lived a, a kind of a, an adventurous life. I don't usually talk about that. Have you ever heard me talk? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't share it that much. But in this message, I want you to know that I'm doing missions work because God's called me. People have made an impact on my life. Hector McMillan was one of those people. And he served for about 20 years, and we served for four years. We were getting ready to go back, and rebel soldiers came over, armed by the Russians and the 
communist Chinese, and they took over the eastern part of the northeastern part of the Congo. And they trained for a few years, and they came in, and they just started wreaking havoc about the time of the 1960 independence of the Congo. And uh, so we we basically uh, took the last plane out. I mean, they, the U.S. paratroopers came in, and they closed the airport. And we main, managed to get to the airport because we were in a remote location. Last night I told the men we were working with the pygmies in the heart of the jungle. So we got there, and God pro provided a way for us to escape. But we, we left, we went back, and we were Canadians, so we went back to Canada. And what happened, though, was Hector McMillan and his family, they went to Kenya because uh, they, they weren't, hadn't been there you know, missionaries usually take a furlough after four years. We'd already been there four years, so we went on back home, and then the country closed, and we couldn't get back in. But Hector and his family, they came back in. Now, they, were, they worked in a city which is now called Kisangani. It used to be called Stanleyville. And uh, they were at kilometer eight in Stanleyville, and we would go visit them. And as a child, I would remember playing with their youngest boys. They had seven boys. The oldest, was the older oldest two were teenagers already, and I was just a little kid, barely able to walk and play around. But by the time we, were, we left, I was, you know, six years old and uh, do, doing a lot of things. And, and they had two young boys named Timmy and Stephen, and I would play with them. I didn't really know the older boys that much, but I played along with them. And my dad and, and Hector and my mom and I own, would, uh, they would be, be close, as close as you could be if you lived 50 miles away in the jungle, but it was a breath of fresh air to be able to see somebody. Well, rebel soldiers came in 1964 as Hector came back, thought it, was, it, it turned peaceful after the 60s revolution. He thought, well, he'd bring his family back because things were quiet. And, the, you know, the government had been stable for a little while. In 1964... Um, and, and, of course, we followed this by news reports and by reports from our mission, missionaries that, that survived. Anyway, some, uh, a jeep drove up one day as they were in their home with another family, the McAllisters, and uh, a jeep drove up, and, and, and they knew they were in trouble because uh, they'd heard reports on the radio that they needed to shelter in place because the Simbas were back. And the, the Simba jeep came up, and and Hector McMillan walked out the door to try to, you know, because he spoke fluent Swahili and he was going to communicate with these uh, Simba soldiers and, and try to calm them down. Well, they just shot him dead right there. And then Bruce, Bruce McAllister, he went out there and, and they shot him. They didn't kill him. A bullet grazed his head and he ran back in the room. And, and the, but the soldiers came back in and they sprayed gunfire all around. Meanwhile, another uh, commander, a jeep, drove up with a commander. And this guy was mad that this, this other group had come in and just started killing people, and, and, and people who were obviously not Africans. And so uh, he dressed them down, and he, he got them into trouble, and he drove them away. But Hector lay bleeding right there on the front porch. I just want to quote, as I own his wife, drew his seven sons together, and they determined that there was nothing they could do to save Hector's life. He said... She said, so I said to the boys, you see your daddy here this way, there's nothing we can do to save his life. Now you can cry if you wish, but I don't think I will. Because I'm so proud of him and so glad he could give his life for Jesus. That made an impact on probably several people, made an impact on me, even though I was back in Canada growing up and only hearing the reports and 
Of course, I knew these things, but she's written a track. You can see how old it is. And um, I have hardly quoted it all my life, but I thought as, as I've been thinking a lot about missions and, and, and my life in, in the last two or three years, I need to tell people. I need to tell people. The reason I'm serving the Lord is because, yes, he called me. It's also because somebody made an impact on my life. And this man made an impact on my life even though I was back in Canada. Made an impact on his boy's life, too. Kenny, his oldest, became a medical doctor. He could have practiced anywhere here in, in the United States or Canada, but he's stationed in Kenya. He makes several trips a year into the war-torn eastern Congo. It has not changed in 60 years, and he still makes medical trips there. Um, Stephen uh, lives in North Carolina in the Greensboro area. He makes frequent trips there for the gospel. He's not in medicine. I've seen Timmy uh, over in Dominican Republic when I've been preaching over there and didn't know he was there, and he's a missionary there. And I know that the death of their father made an impact on their lives as well. And I believe that what we find was that Stephen, Stephen's death made an impact on the Apostle Paul. In fact, in Acts 22, verse 20, you could see when he was arrested and he was on the steps of the, the temple uh, leading to Jerusalem and the mob was wanting to kill him. He, start, he calmed the mob and he gave his testimony. And part of that testimony in verse 22 was about Stephen. He said, I was there and, and, and that shook me up when I saw Stephen uh, uh, killed for his faith. I was there. Then when he testified with King Agrippa, he gave his testimony in chapter 26. He didn't mention Stephen there, but he mentioned how that he was responsible for the death of Christians in Jerusalem. Guess who was on his mind? I believe Stephen made an impact with his life upon the Apostle Paul. I'm going to tell you another true story, and it involves the Congo, and this is why so many of these things are tied together. I didn't know these missionaries because the year was 1921. A young couple, David and Svea Flood, with their two-year-old son, left for the Belgian Congo. You realize that during the period of the early 1900s to 1960, there were more missionaries in the Belgian Congo than anywhere else on earth? Did you know that? Now there are, and there haven't been for 50, 60 years. But I want to tell you, uh, I know, I know um, Gail, well, when I say zero, none that I know of other than that go in and out. Gail Dawson is a good man from Arizona, goes in and out. And he's, he's, he's done what, what I do. I go in and out of these countries that I'm not supposed to live in. I'll be going in and out of Burma, Myanmar, in next month, and then into India next month. And what we do is we train nationals. We teach them. We start Bible colleges on the border sometimes if we can't get into the country. Sometimes the, the government does allow us to have a Bible college. Pakistan, we have Bible college. We've sent out 25 graduates who are now pastoring churches all over Pakistan. That's amazing in a Muslim country. The, it's called the, really, if you look at it, it's called the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. It is not friendly to Christianity. And, and it says, so um, this is what, what, what happens is you train national leaders to do the work that you can't do uh, on and on and on. But so they went into the Belgian Congo as part of the many missionaries that went in there. They went to the village of Endolera. This was down in the southern capital city, which is now called Kinshasa. And they, uh, but they were out in the countryside. They built a mud hut about a half a mile away from this village called Endolera. 
And um, they, the chief would not allow them to go in and do evangelistic work, but he sent a little boy out twice a week with, uh, with some chickens and some eggs to keep them alive, basically. And this little boy would come, and, and um, Svea would talk to this little boy about the Lord Jesus and teach him and, and, and teach him English and went on to, to, to lead him to Jesus Christ. And then malaria took its toll. Their little boy died, first of all. She became pregnant, and she got malaria while she was giving birth. And she died of malaria 17 days later. But she gave birth to a baby girl. Now David, meanwhile, he was torn up. He said, as he gave his little baby girl to an American couple who was also laboring, we labor on mission stations back in those days so because of the dangers that surround us. Gave it to this American couple, and he said, God's forsaken me. I left my life to come here to serve God, and God doesn't care about me. Here, you take my baby girl. I can't raise her. He went back to Sweden. He became an alcoholic. Meanwhile, this little girl, she was there with the parents, uh, with the new parents that she had, and, and uh, they didn't stay that long. They went back to South Dakota, and they raised her there. And then she went to a Bible college in Seattle, and um, she met a young man who was missions-minded, and the two of them uh, became quite involved in missions. He became president of a Christian university in that area. And, uh, but she longed to know what happened to her dad. And so she kept reading magazines all she could uh, from Sweden, so try to get information from Christian magazines. You know, there was a time when Sweden sent a lot of missionaries. Did you know that? Yeah, now they got Greta Thunberg. <clears throat> if you get the drift, right? And she, by the way, on the church website of hers, she's called the um, reincarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, or words to that effect. I'm so proud of her. But anyway, that's another story. But they did send a lot of missionaries. So she was reading up and reading up, and, and, and she finally found an article in a missions magazine that told a story, and it was from a perspective of an African man. And this African man uh, told about um, how, how the, these missionaries had befriended him, the, the uh, birth of a baby girl, the death of a young mother, and how he had come to Christ and learned how to read. And what, what of course, did she teach him to read? The Bible. And over the course of the time that she, before she passed away, she had taught him uh, a lot of English, and he went and he explained the gospel story to his village, and hundreds of boys and girls got saved, and they then explained the gospel in Swahili to their parents, and they got saved, and the whole article was about how that one village had changed so much with the gospel. Oh, it's excited her so much. She said, I got to go and tell my father. I got to find him. She had had no contact with her real father, David Flood. She went back to Sweden, finally uh, found him, and uh, she went to his house, knocked on the door. He had already remarried, had teenage uh, kids, and they greeted her at the door, and they said, you know, he's, he's dying of, of alcohol-related poisoning. Uh, he's not going to live very long. And so, uh, please, don't upset him. Don't talk about um, Jesus. Don't talk about God. He has no use to hear anything about that. It'll only upset him. Well, that rocked her purpose, you know. That's why she came. She wanted to tell him. And so she went in, and he faced against the wall, and, and he was not wanting to speak with her. And, and, and finally, uh, she, she thought to herself, I came all this way, I'm going to tell him. And so she related the story of what happened. And, and he slowly turned 
in his bed and faced her with tears in his eyes. He got reconciled that day to the God that he thought had <laughs> Story doesn't end there. She, this young lady, um, Aggie, and, and, and her husband went to a missions meeting in London, England, and uh, this African man told about the conversion of thousands and thousands that had been baptized in that area of Africa. So she went and talked with him after his speech, and, and, and he said, have you ever heard of the name Svea Flood? He said, heard of her? That's the lady that, that, that taught me about Jesus. And that's the lady I, I brought the chicken and the eggs to. And so he said, you must come to that little village in the Congo. Your, uh, your mother was a hero there. I want to show you where she was buried. And so she got an airline ticket with her husband. They went there. And then they went out there to this, this, this little grave scene where there's a little white cross. And that national pastor read from John 20, 12, 24, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You know, that reminds us, it's not how long we live, it's how we live. To make an impact on the heart of somebody else. Turn with me uh, to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to see what Paul said. As Paul was writing this new church that he had started just a few years ago, we believe he wrote 2 Corinthians around 53, 54 uh, uh, A.D., and uh, he gives glory. Uh, the last few chapters of 2 Corinthians, beautiful chapters, chapter 10, verse 17. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. First of all, of course, he gives glory to the Lord. Secondly, in chapter 11, he gives glory, if you can believe it, to the, the, the suffering. And verse 21 of chapter 11, I, I don't have time really to read it all, but all the horrible things that happened to Paul uh, the 40 stripes that five times he received of the Jews. Th uh, three times he was beaten with rods. Uh, once he was stoned. Uh, three times in shipwreck and perils and journeyings. And the word perils is, I think, four times in verse 26. In weariness, verse 27. Painfulness, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, nakedness. Paul says, verse 30, but if I must needs glory, I'll glory the things which concern my infirmities. Ooh. Have you ever seen anybody like the Apostle Paul that would glory in all of this? But you know what? Somebody made an impact on his life and he wanted to, to give glory to that one as well. After he gloried in his sufferings, he, he, he says in chapter 12, it's not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Well, that would make it around 40. Christ died in the mid-30s. Hmm. You know, commentators have missed this. You look at a commentary and they say, well, Paul's talking about himself. No, he's not. He says he's not. He's giving glory to somebody who made an impact on his life when he was first saved. Didn't happen. He was not involved in, in, in something like this in the middle of his ministry because it was above 14, above 14 years ago. That places it shortly, right around his conversion. Or just before. Well, let's read. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. Well, the first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is, is where the sun and moon and the stars are. The third heaven is where the throne is. How that he was caught up into paradise. Where's paradise? 
Well, it used to be in the heart of the earth because Jesus on the cross said, Today, to the thief, you'll be with me in paradise. That's where he went to preach the gospel there to those who had been, you know, understood and, and, and loved God but didn't know about the sacrifice of Christ. He went there and explained it to them, including the thief on the cross. But then paradise was taken when Christ led captivity captive after his resurrection. Paradise now is in, up in heaven. And so he's looking up into paradise, heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory. That's, he's talking about Stephen. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. He says, no, it's not about me. I'm not giving glory because of me. I want to glory in the person that suffered what I'm talking about. How that he was talking to the Savior in paradise as he was being stoned. That left a great impact on the Apostle Paul. That's who he wanted to glory. He gloried in the Lord. He gloried in his sufferings. And he gloried in that man that he, every time he would give his testimony, he would bring up how he was there, how he held the coats, how he was responsible for the death of that young man who was just simply trying to serve God. Made a great impact on the Apostle Paul. You say, well, you know, I'm, how can I make an impact on someone's life? Well, there was a missionary, and I'm going to close with this, named John Patton. John Patton uh, was a lawyer. And John Patton, when he was a, a, a child in Glasgow, Scotland, he had, he had, he, he, the other children would gather together for a meal, and his father had this annoying habit. He would pray out loud, not just for the food, but for the missionaries, all the missionaries he knew. The food would get cold, and the kids were a little perturbed by that. And it would happen often. And so he became a lawyer. <laughs> He's a, he didn't want to have anything to do with, with you know, the missionaries because his father had embarrassed him too often about that. So he went off to be a lawyer. But you know, God got a hold of his heart, surrendered to be a missionary. And as he left for uh, Glasgow, Scotland, with a few of the other missionaries, his father went down to wave goodbye to him, wondering if he'd ever see him again, because in those days there were cannibals in, in those islands. Now they're called the Fiji Islands. And there was a time in the late 1800s and the early 1900s where the Fiji Islands were the most Christianized nation on earth population-wise. Obviously, not total number of population, but percentage of the population. Because John Patton had done a marvelous work for God amid the cannibals, lost his wife, buried her in the sand, went back, remarried, took his new wife back, and they had a tremendous ministry. And he says, the thing that impacted my life was my father praying for missionaries. You could do that. There, there are things you can do to make an impact on somebody's life. We're doing it all the time, one way or another. I want to encourage you that you live your life with a purpose. And maybe you're not going to win dozens of people to Christ. Maybe you will. But maybe your son, your daughter, somebody that knows you, something that happens in your life can be an inspiration so that somebody else can carry the gospel around the world. I want to tell you, it happened to me. My dad was an inspiration. Hector McMillan was an inspiration. And I feel like I need to share that with you. And I want to continue to take the gospel around the world. But it's because somebody made an impact on my life. It's not how long we live. It's how we live. May God help us.
Pastor, if you'll come and close the service. You know, as he comes, somebody has said this little poem. Some people live in ashes. Some people, I'm sorry, some people die in ashes. Some people die in flames. Some people die inch by inch playing silly little games. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Mark. Um, this weekend, he's been challenging the men. Um, last night, I think the ladies, had they known how he was going to challenge the men, they would have made sure their husbands were there to hear what he said to us men last night. But this morning, telling not just men, but all of us, to live a life of impact. You know, life is not just about making a living, uh, getting through each day, having a career. Obviously, we do all those things. We have responsibilities in the world. But what is your larger purpose in life? What is truly driving you? Do you have that purpose to live a God, a Christ-honoring life, to make a lasting impact for Him? Men, think about your lives. What are you living? What kind of legacy are you leaving for your wife and kids and grandkids? What's your life about? You know, it's been well said, you look at a tombstone and you see the birth date and the death date. But as somebody wisely said, maybe the, maybe the most important thing is the dash in between the two. The life. What did the life stand for? What is your life going to stand for? I'm going to invite you to stand as Jonathan and the musicians come to lead us in a hymn of invitation. And I could be speaking to somebody this morning that you've never even gotten in the journey. You've never even become a Christian. But God's been working on your heart. In fact, that's why you're here this morning. Maybe that's why you've been here recently because... God's been convicting you that there's more. Or you look at all the unrest in the world and all the trouble in the world and it worries you. You're scared about the future because you're not right with God. I want to beg of you to come and pray with one of the pastors this morning and turn your life over to Christ. And to make it your purpose to live a life of impact from this point forward. We want to help you as you begin that journey. Others that maybe want to become a part of a church family where we can grow together to live a life of purpose. Not only individually, but corporately. You come forward. Pray with us as well. We would love to have you a part of this church family. Men, not just men, but ladies, the altar's open. If God's bringing some conviction on your heart about the dash in your life.
What's your purpose? And what will be said of you one day? Let's sing together.